Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Joseph, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do we get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, willing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled at what he, that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich. Thank you for this gift. Lord, thank you that you are both perfect in love, perfect in power, and perfect in knowledge. 
Lord, knowing that you are perfect in knowledge is, is fearful. That you know everything I've ever done in my past. You know everything I do today, every thought that I have, and you know my future. The same is true for everybody here today, Father. And even with that knowledge, you have mercy on us. Thank you for your love, for your grace. Lord, I pray that we will be a people who can worship you in spirit and truth and rest in who you are, Father. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The opening question to the Westminster Shorter Catechism is of urgent importance. It puts forth what we must consider is in God's word. And it demands our attention. Some of you might already know what it is. Let me read it. What is the chief end of man? Some of you probably already know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I propose to you that there is no more foundational or urgent a question as this. Who is God? We all must ask ourselves this question. Who am I? What am I here for? And to what have I been called? And what must I do to be saved? So I want to direct your eyes to our text in the Gospel of John this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Here we have Jesus speaking with a Samaritan woman. And we're going to look at this conversation that he has with this woman and see the glorious truths articulated in this passage. And I trust as the Spirit leads, this is God speaking. He is answering this most urgent question for us this morning in this passage. You must see this. You must hear this. And you must respond. Do we have ears to hear? God is telling us this. We are made to worship and glorify him. The one true God. Aright. And the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ, the son of God. We are made for God's glory. And the only way to render to him the praise he deserves and to enjoy him forever, forever is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. May God bless his word this morning. Notice that we are in chapter 4 of the gospel according to John. This is the beloved apostle, beloved disciple of Jesus, and this is his testimony to show us who is the Son of God. And notice, if you turn to your left in the beginning of this book, in chapter 1, we read this in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 10, the Word. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. No one, verse 18, has ever seen God. The only God 
who is at the Father's side. He who is the Word, He has made Him known. So the Word, the Son of the Father, the Light of the World, the Word made flesh, His name is Jesus, the Son of God. And He reveals the Father to us. And by faith in His name, we may become children of Him. Look now in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. Here we have the Word made flesh, the one who reveals the Father, carrying out his ministry, speaking to a teacher and leader of the Jews, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. In verse 5, Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is saying, you must be born again from above in order to enter the kingdom of God. You cannot claim a certain lineage or fleshly descent. You must be born again by the Spirit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, and by extension us, to know God To be in right relationship with him, you must be born again. You are not in a right relationship with God this morning if you have not been born again. And you must ask yourself this question, have I been born again? Do I know the one true God that Jesus has revealed? Have I tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you turned from your sins? Have you seen the offense that your sins are before a holy God and turned in faith and repentance towards Jesus? And this brings us now to our text this morning in John chapter 4. After speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus leaves Judea, departing to Galilee, and passes through Samaria. Now, Samaria was a byword for the people of God, the Jews. The Samaritans were those Jews who had mingled with Gentiles and distorted God's law. They followed their own traditions and they didn't follow this exactly. And by the Jews, they were considered unclean. We can't have fellowship with them. They were a taunt, a byword to the Jews. They did not render true worship to God because they had compromised God's word For the sake of their traditions. But Jesus, we'll see here in verse 5, a Jew passes through there. Verse 5, follow with me. Jesus comes to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that is noon, 12 o'clock. So the disciple whom Jesus loves, the Apostle John, is setting the scene for us so that we can understand this. Look at the names in that verse. Jacob, Joseph. Jacob is the son of Abraham, to whom belongs the promises of God, that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. Jacob is the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, through whom the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world to bless all nations would come through. Jacob is the one who had the vision of the ladder upon which the angels of God were ascending and descending. 
Jacob is the one who wrestles with God and sees God face to face. Jacob is the one who receives the blessing of God given to Abraham. And Joseph is one of Jacob's son who through God's providence spares the children of Israel through whom the Messiah comes. So we read of these characters throughout the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So this is all very geographical, very significant to them. A lot of places, names, and history belongs here. These are the men who God spoke to. These are the men who God promised. These are the men, the fathers who in faith bought fields and drank from wells, knowing that God would accomplish his purposes through them. And Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, sits beside Jacob's well at the hottest point in the day, noon. So in passing, look here. Remember that the word who was God was made flesh and dwelt among us. He took on flesh and was tempted in every way as we are, yet is without sin. And he suffered so that he can be a merciful and sympathetic high priest to us and for us. And a woman from Samaria comes to draw water and Jesus strikes up this conversation with her. Remember again, Jesus is the light of the world, the one who shines in the darkness, the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he's on a mission to seek and to save the lost. Verse 7, she says, and he says to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have, have no dealings with Samaritans. She understands this. Listen to Jesus' response, verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The point here is this. Jesus is driving this conversation with this woman in such a way as to expose her blindness to the Messiah and to reveal her need of a Savior and her need to worship God and to know Him rightly. He begins by saying in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him, And he would have given you living water. Begs the question, what is the gift of God? The gift of the Holy Spirit. God's grace extended toward a rebellious creation. Receive the Son of God, the Messiah, and you shall live. And notice here the mercy of God. The compassion he has for this poor woman. He is pointing her to her greatest need. The Son of God is here to seek and to save the lost. You must drink of the living water to live. 
he's pointing out to her her desperate need to be born again by the Holy Spirit and to receive the gift of God, his grace in Jesus Christ. Look at her response in verses 11 through 12. She hears what he is saying. This Jew is directly challenging the Samaritan's entire paradigm of God and who he is. Are you greater than our father Jacob? This well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So this Samaritan woman holds fast to her tradition. So much so that she cannot see the Messiah before her very eyes. The same Messiah descended from her father's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. She cannot perceive the wickedness of her sin. She cannot perceive her desperate need to be saved. She is in bondage to her flesh. She loves her sin and she's prideful. She boasts wrongly of her own righteousness, her own lineage. And lest the Samaritans get off, the Jews did the same thing. John chapter 8, we've never been enslaved to anyone, Jesus. Not realizing they were the slaves of sin and the slaves of the Romans. Failing to recognize the Messiah before their very eyes. Failing to recognize that they were in bondage to their own sin. They loved the praises of men more than the praise of God. But listen to the words of the Apostle Paul from Philippians 3. Though he was everything a Jew or a self-righteous man could possibly boast of, he says this, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Believer, do you know this Christ? Can you say with Paul, for to, for to me to live Christ... To die is gain. He is the diadem of heaven. He is the crowning glory of heaven. He is the beloved son of God. The father has given all things to him. Everything was created by him, for him, and through him. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And we will forever sing the praises of the lamb who was slain for us. Jesus, with precision and clarity, smashes her idol in misplaced hopes. Look at verses 13 through 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, talking about Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So whoever drinks of this earthly carnal Water will perish, but all who drink of the water that Jesus gives them will live. The living water that Jesus gives is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit, who is our helper, the one who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The one who makes the Father and Jesus the Son of God to take up residency within our hearts of the believer Whoever conforms us to the image of his son, who seals us for our day of redemption. 
He is the fountain from which the living waters flow and nourishes the believer unto glory. And he resides within us as believers. He does not reside in a geographical well. There isn't a point on the map you can go to get the indwelling of the Spirit. He resides in you if you are in Christ. John Calvin had this to say about the life of the believer in the Holy Spirit. Believers thirst and keenly thirst throughout their whole life. And yet they have abundance of quickening moisture. For however small may have been the measure of grace which they have received, it gives them perpetual vigor so that they are never entirely dry. The Spirit nourishes us. We are thirsty and He satisfies our longings. He satisfies and helps us in our weaknesses. The woman responds, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In bondage to her tradition, she wants to be relieved of the treadmill of external practices, worshiping on this mountain, coming to this well, etc. She wants it to be more convenient. You've got living water? Okay, cough it up. I don't want to do this anymore. Her heart couldn't be further from God. Please make it easier so I don't have to keep coming here and doing this. Perhaps this is your heart this morning. Maybe you're apathetic. Maybe you're cold. And God is grieved by such apathy, such coldness, such deadness of heart. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11. This is God. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. So what are the sacrifices of God? Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Believer, if this is you, if you're cold, repent. Return to your first love. Remember God and his promises to you. Be stirred up unto good works. Would that you were hot or cold and not lukewarm as to be spit out. Psalm 16, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can have abundant life now. Refresh yourself in the word. Or, perhaps you are someone here this morning that sees church attendance, moral acts as a means of gaining acceptance with God. Uh, Another hoop to jump through. To really be worshiping God and get on his good side. Friend, if this is you, you are blind. You do not yet perceive that you are naked and poor before a holy God. That your sins before a holy God condemn you. And that you need deliverance from eternity and hell. You need Christ. You are like this woman. You're blind to your need of abiding living water. The Holy Spirit. You need to be born again. This woman has not reached a point yet of brokenness, her need of a savior. She hasn't seen it yet. So to which Jesus Jesus shifts the conversation. Look with me now in verse 16. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have is now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus is lovingly bringing her to the realization of her sin. Like the rich young ruler who came before Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. Okay, I did them all for my youth. What else must I do? Go and sell all that you have. Come follow me. And he left sorrowful of heart. Why? Because he loved his sin more than God. He was worshiping an idol. He, Jesus, must shatter this woman's false worldview to see her desperate need of a savior. So as believers, we must be willing to say the hard things to one another in Christ. We must first, as Mr. Welch prayed, take the log out of our own eye so that we may see clearly to remove the speck out of our brother's eyes. We've got to take stock here first internally. What am I doing to quench the spirit? And we must take Jesus's clarity as an example here to admonish one another, point them, brother, sister, this is sin. Turn from Christ. Look at God's word. I'm here to walk with you through this. Let's grow in grace and knowledge. We don't need to become sin hunters. We don't need to uh, exasperate one another, but we need to do this in the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, self-control and gentleness in love. We've been called to newness of life. So let's walk in that together. Verse 19 through 24. Follow along. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say, as a Jew, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Truth. So the woman begins pushing back against Jesus. Pointing out my sin. I have the fathers. I don't need you. One is reminded that geographical hub of the worship of God at that time was in Jerusalem at the temple. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is and the presence of God was. This is where you presented your sacrifices, where you met with God. And the Samaritans had made Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, their temple of worship, where they would worship God. And Jesus smashes through her arguments. Verse 21. It's not a matter of geographical location. It's not the religious historical lineage you boast in about the fathers. It is a matter of worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. To be a true worshiper, you must have new life. You must be born again of the Spirit to worship Him rightly. God is Spirit. That's what we see here in our text. First Timothy. God is immortal, immortal, invisible, 
the only God, to whom belongs honor and glory forever and ever, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And because he is spirit, we must worship him in spirit. Just as God has called us to holiness, you shall be holy for I am holy, so too we are to worship him in spirit because he is spirit. God desires and requires worship to be of the heart. He does not desire mere external conformity to the law. Listen to the words of Jesus to the Pharisees in Mark 7. He's quoting Isaiah the prophet in verse 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says, it is what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. God desires your affections. He is not pleased with vain repetitions. He's not pleased in vanity of going somewhere and claiming the fathers and doing all of this. He's not content with just mere formal religiosity. He wants you. He wants the entirety of you. And God is in the business of heart transplants. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your to you, your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Believer, you are clean in Christ. But to you who do not know God, you are not clean. You haven't been sprinkled clean. Jesus is directing this woman's attention to her need of a heart transplant. And Jesus is directing you this morning of your need for a heart transplant. He's calling you to repentance and faith faith this morning. John the Baptist, in chapter 2 of this gospel, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pointing to Jesus. If you are dead, which you are, the promise of eternal life is here. Look to Jesus. He will cleanse you from all of your iniquity, from all of your unrighteousness. He will bring you into a right relationship with God the Father so that you may worship him in spirit, that you may know him. If you turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ, you will be saved. And this promise is for you this morning. And we must worship him in truth. He desires our heart, our affections, the entirety of our person, and We must worship him in truth. He says to her, Jesus speaking again, You worship 
what you do not know. You worship what you do not know. Is not this an indictment upon the whole world? The world does not worship in truth. And we are not afforded the option here by Jesus to worship God in any way that we like. Romans 1 paints this picture clearly for us. The natural man, those who are dead in their sin, suppresses the truth. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The religious lost man, Romans 2, you who think you've kept the law, you're self-righteous, you're condemned before God because you can't keep the law. As Scott was teaching this morning, Mount Sinai, that mountain, the law, is going to come crashing upon you. And you're going to be found wanting, condemned. You cannot keep the law. So Paul consigns both Gentile and Jews under the condemnation of God. Paul consigns us all under the condemnation of God. And he points us to Romans 3. Our only hope of salvation is through Jesus Christ. Our only hope to know God and to worship him in spirit and truth is through Jesus Christ. Faith alone in him. He promises you eternal life. Psalm 115 tells us that idol worshipers become like their idols. They, they have to carry the idol. They have to come and set it up in a corner somewhere and they have to prop it up. They have to put light on it. They have to worship it. It's something that they fashion with their own hands. And God's word tells us that they become deaf. The people worshiping them, idols, become deaf. They become blind, lame, can't understand. We must understand this truth. We must worship the one true God. We cannot worship an idol. We cannot worship a God of our own understanding. Some cosmic Santa Claus who just doesn't look at your sin, but you know just rewards you whenever you call upon him. Some lever you can pull and he's just going to shower blessings upon you. You've got to know the God of the word. He is love. And he is just. And he sent his son into the world to be the light of the world. To show us our need of him. To be brought into right relationship with him. Colossians tells us that through the cross, we, the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God. He's reconciling all things to him in Christ. God's word tells us this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 Jesus says this in John chapter 17 in his prayer to the Father, praying for his disciples. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We must be in the word, in the word as God's people. We must be in the word. If you are not regularly feeding upon this, off the bread of life and the living waters is found in the word, then you're going to waste away. 
We must be meditating. We must be coming to the Lord Christ in the word, feeding upon him, nourishing our souls. You must be renewing your mind in the word. We must be meeting together, not neglecting the means of grace. This is a tremendous means of grace. We're all here. We're gathered to sing. We're gathered to fellowship, to worship, to encourage one another the truth, to hear the preaching of God's word. Don't neglect the, uh, don't, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Observe baptism. Participate in the Lord's Supper. Be in the Word. And being in the Word helps us discern falsehood. Um, It helps us see compromises in the Gospel. We have to realize that if Baal is God, worship Him. And if God is God, worship Him. We must know who the one true God is. And we have fellowship with one another as we know who he is, we've been brought into fellowship with one another through the gospel. We can't have fellowship with our Roman Catholic friends. We can't have fellowship with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. We must be people of the book. We must understand the gospel. It is core. That is what brings us into right relationship. Is Christ alone. So where are some examples where we see worshiping in spirit with our total being and in truth. Just some examples, and we can jot these down. Uh, Moses' song, Exodus 15. Hannah's song, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 11. The Psalms, uh, Mary's song in Luke 1, and Revelation 4 and 5. We see songs, we see poetry, we see these individuals consumed with who God is who've been changed, who've been brought from death into life, and who are articulating truth. And that, what a great example they are to us. What if I don't feel like praising him, though? Worship in spirit and truth. Well, I don't, I, I don't feel like it. You don't understand the pain I'm going through. You don't understand the hardships of having a lost child or having a brother who's lost. You don't understand that. You don't understand the financial struggles I'm facing. You don't understand my marriage. You don't understand that I'm reaching the end of my life. You don't understand that I'm sick and dying. Paul tells us we are to worship in every circumstance. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-19 tells us that. Our hearts must be governed with the truth. We cannot be governed by our emotions. It, there's pitfalls on both sides of this example. For governed through emotions, we'll be distorted in knowing who God is. But if we are all truth, we're going to turn into this dead formalism. We're going to be really good Pharisees who can spout off the gospel and truths really well and really fast and not know God. We have to be firmly planted in the word. We must be born again. And we must consign ourselves to be like Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord our God. We must we must worship the Father in spirit and truth. Why? Because he is worthy of all worship. You were created for this purpose. Why must we worship him? He is the creator. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-sufficient. He is all-wise. He is all-majestic. He is all-beautiful. He is holy. He is truth. He is eternal. 
This is eternal life, Jesus says, that we know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. How can we know him? How can we possibly worship this God rightly? How can we worship our God, who is a consuming fire? How can sinful man be made right with the one true God and approach him and enjoy him forever? Well, look with me in verses 25 through 30. 25 through 30. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. John 14, same book, John 14 tells us this, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And that whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Jesus has reconciled us to God by making peace through the blood of his cross. You must be in Christ to worship in spirit and truth. You must be in Christ to know the Father. You must submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. You must call upon his name and you will be saved. You must abide in him. You must turn from your sin. You must be in Christ to have peace with God. There is no other name in heaven or on earth given to man by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. And our our response is to be of this woman. Look in verses 27 through 30. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So we must leave in haste, leaving our, our water jug behind and go into the city. And we've got to point people to Christ. They must know the one true God. This is what we were created to, to be. This answers our question from the beginning. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We've got to show them Christ. We've got to be evangelized. We've got to be speaking to them in truth and love. God says this. To this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. We are made to worship. And glorify the one true God aright. And the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are made for God's glory. And the only way to render to him the praise he deserves and to enjoy him forever is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I I leave now with this question. Have you been born again? It's an important question. And I I submit to you, as you've seen, Christ is the answer. Turn from your sin. Embrace Christ. He is the Savior of the world. Not, Not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. Just like this woman, just like you, just like me. But praise be to God that all of us who are in Christ, 
We who were once dead in our sins and transgressions, who have been made alive by the grace of God, made us alive in Christ, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That Christ is our righteousness. That we are beloved children of God. That there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ. That the Father now delights in us and loves us just as he loves the Son. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for this this day and this time. Um, Thank you for uh, the privilege um, to hear your word sung and, and prayed over and taught and preached this morning. I do pray that if there's anyone here who's convicted of their sin, that they would turn to Christ in saving faith. That they would know the one true God, you, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That they would worship you in spirit and truth. Father, may we do this. Thank you that we are no longer confined to a geographical place. Our bodies are the very temple of the Holy Spirit. God, grow us in holiness, grow us in love for you, grow us in affection for you and in truth. It's in Christ Jesus' name, ask that he would be glorified. Amen.